Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Kamran Zaki, Chief Operating Officer of Adyen, a Dutch payment company that allows businesses to accept payments across multiple channels and platforms. The company is publicly listed and currently has a market cap of close to $50 billion. Prior to Adyen, Kamran worked in several tech and payments companies, including PayPal, Netflix, and Citigroup, where he headed global payments teams across Europe, North America, and emerging markets. And now join me in an interesting interview with Kamran Zaki. Kamran, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Extremely excited to have you here. Can we maybe get started by hearing a bit about your background? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, currently the COO of Adyen. I've been here for almost seven years. Prior to this, I was at Netflix for approximately three years, uh, managing the payments teams for them. So as Netflix was expanding around the world, how do we identify how people want to pay in different countries and uh, who do we need to partner with to enable that? And before that, I was at PayPal for seven years, helping them with uh, similar activities uh, in different parts of the world. Before that, not sure how I got into what is now called fintech, but I think it started when I was in consulting after business school, I had a background from Citibank, a partner noticed, asked me to help with a project and uh, things sort of uh, took off from there. So 20 years later, fortunate, uh, somehow I uh, stumbled into uh, this area and it's been a lot of fun uh, seeing all the evolutions over the years. That's very interesting. And then, so you've collaborated and worked with some of the most important financial institutions and some of the most important fintechs out there. So over the last two decades, has the evolution of the fintech industry surprised you? What's your take on the last couple of decades? It's always in hindsight, you look back and say you shouldn't be surprised, but absolutely, right? So if you look at, forget even before it, but I joined PayPal in 2004, and that was before the iPhone came into existence, right? So I think, of course, consumer payments are, are always critical, but at least I don't think way back then I anticipated how fast technology would evolve and change and how global things would become. So in the early days of PayPal, right, when we were expanding around the world, the first meeting typically with financial institutions was educating them on who we are and that we're part of eBay and we're not a startup and why they should want to work with us, right? And now I think most places, PayPal is a pretty recognized brand and everyone sort of gets what they do. So absolutely, I think in hindsight, pretty surprised at how fast things have evolved. And I've been focused on payments, but fintech is obviously a much broader category, as I'm sure your audience and you know from uh, all the other podcasts you've been doing. No, absolutely. Certainly a huge industry. So tell us about that jump from Netflix to Adyen. You were in a very interesting role at Netflix. It was a growing company. I'm sure things are, are interesting and you had a challenging job, but then for some reason, you decided to 
switch and join Adyen, right? Tell us uh, about the, your decision to go forward with this. Yeah, I got lucky. Peter, who's our CEO and one of the co-founders of Adyen, and I had a mutual acquaintance, and she connected us just for networking, said, hey, I think you two would uh, get along well and should chat. So I think we had our first chat was a Skype conversation. And uh, to your point, Netflix was a great company. I really enjoyed working there, wasn't looking for a new gig. But as Peter and I chatted over the months, I got more and more intrigued. And on a few dimensions, one, the technology, right? It in hindsight, is again, very common sense. People say, what do you do? Well, Adyen does payment processing for companies or businesses around the world. And some of the public names are, for example, Microsoft or Uber or Netflix, Spotify, et cetera, right? And everyone says, what's special about it? And it's, hey, it's one platform, which we built in-house, which covers the various markets, the different payment methods, and all the channels. And uh, then people say, well, why is that special? And, and the answer is because most other companies are not global, or if they are, they've often grown through M&A. And so it's a, a fragmentation of platforms on the back end. And that has a huge impact on customer experience and data and you know how many contracts you need, how many integrations, implementation costs. So that was sort of really unique and special and attracted me. And then the second was honestly the people or the culture part, right? So I think Peter had had a company before this. He had very firm thoughts as his co-founder are not did on how they want to scale. And it was basically about, hey, this is not going to be top down. We want to hire really smart, bright people and we want to empower them. And we want to uh, collaborate together and build this with each other. So those two things resonated, and obviously I did my homework and chatted with a few folks I knew who were either already partnering with IDN or in conversations. Both of these points got reinforced time and time again. So I sort of decided this sounds like a really cool opportunity and uh, joined IDN uh, in the San Francisco office six and a half, seven years ago. I think it's really interesting that Adyen is one of those companies that is not small. I mean, your market cap today is around $40 billion, but also the ultimate users of your technology, they probably have never heard of you, right? It's one of those embedded companies. Tell us a bit about the evolution of the company and whether the business model was always the one that we see today. Yeah, great question. So when I think the company was founded in 2006, we worked with enterprise customers. And you know, at that point, think early days still of e-commerce. And the challenge was as companies expanded around the world, you would normally have to partner with an incumbent, which was often a bank. And so our first entry was basically being what's called a gateway in the industry, which was how do you help a large company expand internationally and help them connect to different banks or players in all these countries. So they would often have to have a contract with them and get their money settled by them, but we would be sort of the technology connector. And for the first several years, that's how we worked. And, you know, large companies like KLM and Vodafone, and then eventually Groupon International were customers. And one of the things we realized is that, hey, when there are three parties in the mix, often there's a lot of handoffs and you know, data drop-offs or degradations or if things don't work perfectly, there's a lot of friction. And as technology evolved and regulations evolved, we basically got what was called a Payment Institute license in Europe first and became members of Visa MasterCard and were able to do everything end-to-end. So, for example, if you were paying your subscription on Spotify or Netflix, or if you wanted to pay, you know, in the future for an Uber ride, 
basically we worked with those companies and we could do everything from, you know, securely helping them gather your credit card or debit card details to charging it to the reporting, reconciliation, money movement, everything. So that's how we started out. And then that's how we've sort of kept expanding globally. The second part is obviously in many parts of the world, people pay with credit and debit cards, but also other forms of payment, right? They sometimes pay with their bank accounts, sometimes with wallets, sometimes with cash-based payment methods. And in fact, for non-Americans, those are often the more popular ways to pay, right? And so we started offering all of those. So if you went to Netherlands, for example, they have a banking payment method called Ideal, which ends up for all e-commerce transactions being you know, bigger than any card-based payment method and help them expect, accept those also, right? And cater to the local population. And then as things continued to evolve, we said, hey, we could also help companies with their physical transactions. So in stores, because technology is advanced. And if it's our software and security on the terminals, we could route those just like internet transactions and really help solve, you know, the omni-channel kind of experience that everyone talks about. So today we basically are in many different parts of the world, in Europe, North America, Latin America, Asia, where we do sort of the end-to-end processing across cards as well as local payment methods and across e-com mobile, but also physical store locations for large customers who have a global footprint. So you're a truly global company. And now I imagine it becomes definitely challenging to manage and maintain a culture, particularly as you grow. You mentioned that the culture has always empowered smart people. Over the years since you joined, have you seen an evolution of the culture of the company? Yeah. So actually, right when I joined, since the company is founded in 2006, they were already quite mature and we were already in multiple countries around the world. And so one of the things that was already underway is how do we maintain the culture, right? As we keep adding more and more offices and more and more people, it's not that easy to do it by word of mouth. And I think as we thought through it, we felt sort of the standard vision and mission and strategy statements were not really sort of Adyen-like. So we came up with what we call the Adyen formula, which is more sort of, you know, bullet point style version and put it on a piece of paper and started communicating and sharing that with the company and the new hires. But what we quickly realized is to avoid it becoming just words on a card or on a wall, right? What's really important is making sure everyone understands the context, right? And the history behind those. Some of them are self-explanatory, like working together as a team, right? Or we built to benefit all merchants, or we don't hide behind email instead of we pick up the phone. But then it really is, how do we make sure we practice that and everyone understands? So a few examples of things we do to maintain it. So one is every person we hire, regardless of role or location, their final interview is with one of the board members. And it's not meant to be a gating factor as in, hey, do I think Miguel is good enough to be part of Adyen? No, it's a two-way street of, hey, you're interested in the company, we're interested in you, let's make sure we have a good dialogue that we can talk about the strategy, but also our culture, and then make a joint decision of, is this a good fit for you and us, and go from there. So we start talking about the formula throughout the whole hiring process. 
Then when people join as part of their onboarding, there's obviously content-related courses and things, but there's also a heavy emphasis, again, on giving the stories and the context behind the formula and uh, sort of what it means. And then same as we've been growing and we have more and more team leads and people managers, we do regular sessions with them as a management team as well. So in fact, I was just doing one right before I joined your podcast where we had eight people from different functions, different parts of the world, and we were discussing sort of what's the Idean way of leading teams and how do we make sure we maintain this culture and formula so that we don't end up having to add just a lot of process and rules and guidelines, but make it fun for people to be here and, and uh, do their job. That's fascinating. And curious, uh, what, what is that Idean way? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, if you don't mind, since we're on Zoom, I can see if I can do a quick uh, share screen and show you the... Oh, I think it's uh, disabled. Uh, now, now you can. Can you see? Yes. Okay. So, so this is the Idean formula. And the way, it, as you can see, it says the way we work is guided by these eight principles. And we think they're common sense. But for example, we build to benefit all merchants, not just one. And the example there is we deal with a lot of really large companies, right? Fortune 500. But anytime we build something, it could be the first time we're doing it, but we want to build it in a way that we can productize it and scale it rather than customize it for any one merchant, no matter how large. And it's not just because that's good for Idean. We think it's good for the customer because if it's custom development, often what will happen is people will forget about it, right? Inadvertently in a new release, you might break some code. And so it's just a philosophy, but something we spend a lot of time discussing with our merchants of, hey, What's the problem you're trying to solve? Let's not be prescriptive. Let's figure out how we can do it in a generic way that can benefit you, but everyone else, right? Or two, we don't hide behind email. Instead, we pick up the phone. So we're very global. We have teams in 22 offices around the world. And obviously, time zones are a challenge. But we found out early on, if I send you an email, sometimes I'm busy and I may send you a two-liner. And that doesn't give you enough context. And then, you know, you're awake while I'm sleeping and, and you're getting irritated at my email, which you feel was a little terse and maybe didn't have the right context and cultural awareness. And so by the time I wake up and I call you, you're pretty irritated with me and the conversation goes downhill. So it's a, hey, of course, send an email saying tomorrow I'll give you a call. Let's talk about this so you can think through it. But let's talk on the phone. It's a lot faster rather than ping pong back and forth. So a lot of common sense we think goes into it, but uh, super important to us. Or third from the top, we launch fast and iterate. So we feel, hey, the world is moving so fast that if you try and perfect something, by the time you roll it out, it may already be out of date. So it doesn't mean launch something subpar, but hey, this philosophy of what's a minimum viable product and let's launch pretty quickly, but then be prepared to work with our customers and iterate based on their feedback, right? And perfect it such that then it's available for our thousands of customers globally. So this is sort of the idea and formula and how we all work together. And then we build a lot of the other stuff like, hey, idea and way of leading teams is around a lot of these things, right? And how do you empower people? So don't micromanage people, but give them the context, right? And explain the strategy. And this is how we work together and let them work with each other, right? Which is hopefully more fun for everyone and less of a top-down and more sort of a bottom-up or egalitarian way, which we think um, hopefully is more productive and also more fun for everyone. Outstanding. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to turn our attention 
to the U.S. market. I know you're extremely global, but the U.S. market is important for you. It's very important for you. Tell us about your approach to the U.S. It's a competitive market, of course. Absolutely. I think, look, when I first joined to your point, because we serve a lot of customers and sort of a B2B model, we didn't have a lot of brand awareness. And luckily, that's improved and changed over the years. But sometimes our entry point was, hey, how can we help you with your needs in other parts of the world, often Europe, but also Latin America and Asia? And we sort of have the strategy that these are large enterprise customers. Let's start with helping them with a specific pain point, and then we go from there. So again, they already have a contract with us and they already have a connection with us. And because it's a global platform, there's very little, if any, incremental work needed. And so we signed up a lot of U.S. customers in the early days, but to help them with their international needs. And over time, we've built out a lot of our U.S. product offering and capability where now many of them are using us uh, in the U.S. as well, or often starting with the U.S. So a few examples are, we talked publicly last year, I believe, or beginning of this year about Subway, right? Selected us to be their partner for their omni-channel offering across all of the U.S., right? So that means, hey, both for online or mobile ordering, but also in every Subway location, when you go and pay for your sandwich, we're helping them power that experience for you. And also for a lot of the other customers we talked about earlier in the podcast, we're helping them not just in other parts of the world, but in the U.S. as well. So I think that we've tried to differentiate is one omni-channel. So we think that something that not just retailers, which is where it started, but also quick serve restaurants in the subway example are really leaning forward. So even pre-COVID, I think everyone wanted to better recognize their customer. So in the past, if Miguel comes in and he orders a hamburger or a sandwich or whatever the food of choice may be, they don't know who you are, right? Because you stood in line, you ordered, you paid, and you walked away. Now with sort of mobile order ahead, right? Able to recognize you, are you the more loyal customer? Um, what's your choice? How do they give you coupons or offerings that cater to your needs? And if you look at what's going on in COVID, where people don't want to touch things, I think that's taking off even more, whether then delivery or pickup, or eventually, hopefully, we get back to in-store dining. So we're seeing sort of the omni-channel capability resonate across the spectrum with everyone. And I think in COVID times, it became critical, right? If your physical locations are shut, you have to have a mobile or e-com offering. Otherwise, you're sort of completely stuck and can't serve your customers. And where it's extending now is as the physical stores are opening, how do you do curbside pickup or how do you do mobile checkout? So you're at the curb, have you prepaid or are you paying then? We're, we're getting really creative use cases. So for high-end luxury, some of our merchants are saying, well, I'm going to let my customer shop via Zoom, right? So that way, basically, you can see the inventory in the store, you can pick what you want, even the color, but then you can either prepay for it or you can have it waiting when you show up at the curb. So ideally do a contactless transaction so you don't have to touch anything and, and worry about COVID. So I think that's how we've been trying to differentiate in what to your point is sometimes a commoditized market. And especially in the COVID world, how we continue to try and add value to our customers and really what are their pain points and, and how can we help them with those rather than a generic offering. Those are hopefully some helpful examples. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. It makes sense. I mean, as a, as a client, offering that omni-channel solution really simplifies their lives, I guess, right? Because they have to 
interact only with you and they have consistency on multiple payment methods. What's been the evolution with your existing clients? I was reading that 80% of your revenue growth last year came from existing clients, right? So you're clearly continuing to develop this relationship, right? While also focusing on, on new clients. Yeah, absolutely. I think two things. One, we take great pride in the fact that we historically and continue to have extremely low churn rate, right? So less than 1%. And two is what I started, what we chatted about a little bit before, that because we're global and we offer so many different payment methods and cover all the channels, often we'll start a relationship in one geography or in one channel, but then grow from there. And so, you know, if the relationship starts this year, we get something live and then, hey, we continue to add in the next few years, right, as the global rollout or incremental payment methods. And so that's, again, given the enterprise nature and the start with something small or large and continue to scale from there. That's why a lot of our growth continues to come from incremental customers. It sounds like COVID has definitely been a, a time for Adyen to shine and add a lot of value to your clients. But I also imagine this hasn't been without challenges, right? Uh, this is, is not an easy environment to operate in. How have you navigated the last six to seven months? I think as we talked about the culture and the people side, we had very much an environment where we liked to and spent a lot of time getting teams together, right? So working out of the office, not remotely, traveling to other parts of the world, getting teams together multiple times a year in a given location. So I think that was sort of the biggest change for us internally of how do we continue hiring and onboarding people remotely? How do we make sure we keep cross-functional teams and global teams connected? And I think thankfully with modern technology, Zoom, like this podcast, I, I think that's uh, been a big positive for us, but also encouraging people to pick up the phone, like text each other or WhatsApp or call each other outside of those forums. And I think the team has responded really well to that and a lot of creative ideas for team meetings and one-on-ones and so on. The other big thing is we've always been very customer focused. We sort of have as part of the formula, everyone is merchant facing, whether developers or ops, uh, not just sales and account management teams. And that's what we tried to do saying, hey, depending on what vertical our, our customers are in and what part of the world, they're all impacted at different stages and to different degrees. And how do we work with them to say, you know, what are your top pain points? What can we do to alleviate it? As we come up with something in one geography or with one customer, how can we leverage that and cross-share with each other and with those customers? So I think that's how we've tried to uh, deal with some of the challenges. So I think we're absolutely looking forward to a a post-COVID world where we can get back to being in offices and traveling together. But I think in the meantime, we've tried to make sure that uh, we continue hiring, we continue sort of collaborating and living up to the IDN formula. And most importantly, how do we help our customers, many of whom are quite significantly impacted in these times, right? So if you're in travel or if you're in physical retail, obviously it's been extremely challenging. While if you're digital goods or e-com, it's probably been um, a bit of a boom time, but uh, we want to be there for all of them. Coming on in your recent shareholder letter, I was reading that you mentioned that you're building a company for the long term. How do you envision Adyen's future, right? What's your view for the long term? 
I think that's something that's been super important to us from the beginning and something we've tried to be very clear about when we IPO'd and with all of our shareholders that we don't want to be overly focused on short term. And part of it is because we think for all the success our customers and we've had together, there's so much more to do. So we're in many parts of the world, but they continue to be additional geographies we can expand into to help our customers. There continue to be, sometimes surprisingly, still more payment methods that could be integrated. And I think our omni-channel capabilities are live in many parts of the world, but not everywhere yet. Two, as we said, we started with enterprise, but we've talked about, A, we've realized our offering could also really add a lot of value to mid-market customers as they scale quickly in size and also geographically. So we're working hard to simplify the offering to, to make it easier for them. And then third, also, we've in the last few years realized that we can really help companies whose business model is marketplace or platform. So it started with you know traditional retail marketplaces, a few public examples, I think, are, are Etsy and eBay. But what we've realized is a lot of platforms, the companies whose model might be more SaaS-based, are starting to want to help their customers with payments. So an example is a company who was providing software for doctor's offices or for hair salons and spas. Their end customers are often small businesses. And they said, you're providing the software that lets me make appointments, do all my bookkeeping, inventory management, but payments is complicated. And then I have to go find someone else. Couldn't you help with that? So we're starting to partner with these companies and how can we help them onboard their end customers, right? So they know your customer, anti-money laundering, et cetera, do the payment processing and also do the payouts to these end customers. So if you look at all of those different kind of segments, geographies, payment methods, channels, we think there is still so much runway ahead that we really want to focus on how we can accomplish all of these goals long-term. And that's why, despite COVID, we've been hiring quite aggressively because we think there's a lot of great talent out there and we really want to keep going for the long term and not get constrained by current situation. What I find fascinating is that oftentimes we hear this long-term strategy coming from companies that are not yet profitable, but you have EBITDA margins of 55%. And yet you are focused on the long term. So I think you're very well positioned for the future. Kamran, this has been uh, fascinating. Before we go, we have one last question that we'd like to ask all of our guests. And that's to hear a bit about your personal life, a bit about some of that time outside of Adyen. Absolutely. So I have uh, two young girls. They're uh, almost nine and 13. And so I think apart from uh, schooling from home, nowadays it's, uh, yeah, either playing in the backyard or watching movies together. The younger one has just started the Star Wars trilogy. So I think that'll keep us busy for at least the next few weeks. Yeah. And honestly, I think pre-COVID, we would travel as a family. And uh, that's something we're really looking forward to getting back to once it's safe and able to do it. And that's why it was interesting hearing your background and how you grew up all over the world. And definitely some of those countries are on our list to to visit when possible. Happy to send some recommendations your way. (laughs) It'd be fantastic. Well, Kamran, thank you again for joining us. You know, this has been just great. And now you're definitely a friend of the podcast, a friend of Wharton, and we hope to see you are on campus sometime soon. I know you are a product of Booth, but still we we forgive you. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's been a pleasure to be part of this. Thanks so much for having me and look forward to definitely staying in touch and visiting you guys on campus as soon as possible. Thank you, Kamran. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.